Hey everyone, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a show that looks at how words change over time. If you love the podcast and you want to show your support, you can become a monthly contributor at patreon.com slash words for granted. Thanks to Sarah, Steve, and Justin for their recent contributions. If Patreon's not your thing, but you still want to help keep things moving around here, you can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash words for granted. This is the last episode in a block of back-to-back interviews that I've had over the last few months. If you're a long-time listener, fear not, we'll be back to our etymological business as usual in the next episode. With that, let's jump into today's interview episode with Courtney Napolis, lead of language research at Grammarly. Courtney, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Ray. It's great to be here. So we'll talk more about your role and research at Grammarly in a second, but start us off with a little introduction to you and your trajectory within the field of linguistics. Yeah, certainly. Um, So this is something I enjoy talking about, and I I actually love asking other people this question, too, because there's so many similarities in how people get into the field um, and a lot of differences, too. So I started out when I was an undergrad at Princeton. I was researching cognitive linguistics um, with a major in psychology and a certificate in linguistics. And while I was doing my undergraduate work, I also did some research in the cognitive science laboratory, which is where WordNet is housed. And WordNet, if you aren't familiar with it, it's this really large lexical database of cognitive synonyms in English. And all the synonyms are linked by semantic and lexical relations. Um, And so as I was researching uh, with the cognitive science lab, I started to learn about you know, automated and computational approaches to how we use and understand language. And this introduced me to the field of natural language processing. Um, So then, you know, this was something that I was interested in and I've always been interested in language. But after graduating from college, I decided to work, you know, take a few years off and work, even though I I was interested in going back to a graduate degree. And what kind of work was that? I worked for several years in the trade publishing industry and in the editorial side, where I was you know, working directly with authors and developing nonfiction books. After a few years in the publishing industry, a couple things happened at once. Um, one is that ebooks started to um, surge in popularity. The Kindle was released and book sales started going down. Um, they already were because of the internet, but the publishing industry really started to shrink. And the other thing is, is that, you know, as I was doing all of this editing, I noticed that there were so many patterns present in the writing and repetitive things that I had to check or do as an editor to work on the clarity or the consistency of um, the author's text. And as I was doing this, you know, I would try to develop macros in Microsoft Word to to help um, automate and make things faster. But I really thought that there was an opportunity here to do some more, you know, focus work on developing smarter tools to help editors and writers too. I made the decision to go back to school. You know, after college, I had wanted to go back um, to get a higher degree in linguistics. But at this point, given the, given the interest in developing the tooling, I decided to go back into computer science so I could specifically learn how to apply my linguistic knowledge to computational techniques um, and learn how to develop machine learning and artificial intelligence approaches to build these tools. So so at this point, I went to Johns Hopkins to do my PhD in linguistics. And while I was there, my research was focused on 
automatically rewriting texts with the goals of helping people. Um, so specifically, I was looking at, can you automatically simplify text through making lexical and syntactic substitutions um, or shorten text through paraphrasing and deletion and also correcting grammatical mistakes? While I was doing my research, I met the founders of Grammarly and I was pretty impressed by their mission and their vision for the product. And um, that's that's how I ended up here. And now now that I'm at Grammarly, you know, I'm able to do that work, really helping people communicate more effectively on a huge scale. And I, I get to work with this brilliant team of you know, linguists and researchers and engineers to develop our AI. So it's been a very, a very great and holistic journey where I think I've come full circle now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't want to project too much here, but it kind of seems to me like you were doing the right thing at the right time to land the perfect job for you and your research interests. I think I really did. Um, my personal statement going into grad school was talking about, you know, my background in linguistics and in editing and how it was worth making a big bet on me, even though I didn't have the, you know, the strong computer science background. Tell us now about what Grammarly is. I think a lot of my audience probably knows what it is or at least has heard of it. But nonetheless, let's get it from the, the horse's mouth, so to speak. Uh, what is Grammarly's mission? And then go ahead and tell us a little bit about what you do as the lead language researcher there. Uh, sure. So at Grammarly, we provide AI-powered communication assistance that helps more than 30 million people, our users, and 50,000 teams across the world. And it helps them communicate more effectively every day. And so in order to do this, we provide suggestions to help improve the communication. These suggestions do include um, suggestions to improve the grammatical or orthographical correctness of their language, as our name Grammarly suggests. But we also provide a lot more um, holistic writing suggestions, such as how to make writing more clear or more concise, how to change the tone of the message that you're crafting so that it can be maybe better received. And just to clarify for listeners, this is all happening with AI, right? This is not like one-on-one -on -one or through group workshopping. This is all through some automated proprietary software that Grammarly has created. Yes, precisely. So Grammarly is an AI company. All of our suggestions are powered by AI. It's available um, on your computer, on your mobile phone, essentially anywhere you're typing. Uh, Grammarly can be present and can give you suggestions to improve your text. And then at the foundation of this AI, we have a dedicated team of linguists who are, you know, obsessing over the language, working hard to understand how language is used for communication to help craft the suggestions that we're giving to our users. Got it. So one of the things that I believe you focus on in your work is combating linguistic bias, which is the main thing we're going to talk about here today. So let's define exactly what that means. What, what is linguistic bias? Yeah, so when we speak about bias in the product, what we're really thinking about are the ways in which language can perpetuate social biases or discriminate against other people. So in order to address social biases and to mitigate them, we develop a variety of approaches, looking first of all at the underlying data and algorithms that power our AI, to looking at how, you know, how the product is used and then how the product might react in certain situations. 
Um, I'll give you a concrete example of this. So, for instance, one of the core ways in which bias manifests itself is through gender and gendered pronouns. We want to make sure that our product provides the same suggestions, regardless of whether or not there's a feminine pronoun or a masculine pronoun in the text. So one good example of this is the sentence, Charlie can collect um, blank earrings. Um, and so like the blank could be a her or a his. And we want to make sure that we don't just suggest the her because it could be somebody who identifies as a man or non-binary who also has the earrings as well. Um, on the flip side, if we had the word earrings misspelled, there may be a bias that the pronoun would be his if it was earnings versus her if it was earrings. So that's the type of gender bias that we specifically want to make sure that our product does not have. That kind of segues into the next thing I wanted to ask you, which is tell us how AI actually manifests biases, right? Like, is this ultimately just a matter of having limited data sets? Like, for example, only having, uh, say, academic texts as a reference for how people talk or write in the real world, which is, of course, not how people most of the time talk and write in the real world. Yeah, it's a really good question. Ultimately, there are two causes. And the first one is the largest one. And that's the underlying data, like you pointed to. So it's helpful to understand the underlying technology. Today, most of the powerful AI approaches involve machine learning and deep learning. And these are AI approaches that learn patterns from large amounts of data and then generalize those patterns when they're making predictions. So in our case, you know, for instance, we could be giving a machine learning model a large amount of text that has grammatical errors and then has you know errors that have been corrected um, to learn how to correct mistakes or similarly, a large amount of text that might be very robotic and then that that same text that has been rewritten to be more personable or warmer. And the AI will then learn these patterns and then apply them anytime they see novel data. And so you can imagine that the underlying data can be biased itself. And so this bias is generally if there's an uneven distribution of writing styles or ideas or vocabulary. And then, you know, without without paying attention to the bias, the models and the, the AI models will learn to favor what they encounter more frequently. So when we're thinking about the data that's out there, we need to be very careful to make sure that we have very diverse data that represents different viewpoints, different topics, different you know, cultures, for instance, so that our AI can learn all of this and not just focus on, you know, just one segment of the population. The second way in which, you know, in which AI can be biased is in the modeling choices, because there are certain AI approaches that will amplify the most frequent patterns that it sees, but I won't get into that here. Yeah. So, so maybe let's go back to that example you gave with uh, earrings and earnings. So, just to really spell it out for, for listeners, the way how an AI system might auto-suggest her as opposed to his when it precedes the word earrings is because it has a greater data set of the pronoun her preceding earrings. And similarly, the word earnings might, in the data, be more associated with a masculine pronoun uh, preceding it. Uh, and therefore, Based on the data, it might, uh, quote unquote, reasonably suggest, oh, you, you didn't mean to say earrings, you meant to say earnings, because in all of this other data, uh, 
earnings is associated with men and earrings is associated with with women. Is that um, kind of a simplified way of uh, explaining what you're saying and how this actually works? Yes, exactly. That's exactly that's exactly how what it boils down to. And this is actually a good example of one way in which we combat this type of bias in our data sets is we will swap the genders of pronouns so that if the underlying data set that our AI is learning from has the sentence, um, has the phrase her earrings, we can also add the phrase her earnings. Similarly, if it has his earnings, we can also swap the gender of that pronoun so that would have um, her earnings as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. Um, now, sort of in the in the history of linguistic AI, this this is not something I know very much about. Um, <laughs> a lot of what uh, words for granted is about is often less less practical, but nonetheless very interesting things uh, in language like etymology and historical linguistics, etc. So, so I guess I guess what I'm wondering is in the history of the field. Um, is being aware of this bias and and the accompanying work to undo it is that new within the sector? Has that been around for a while? What 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 can you say about the history of dealing with linguistic bias in AI? Yeah, I mean, I will say that if we look at the evolution of AI technology, um, we we can look at Grammarly. So Grammarly's been around for thirteen years. And when the company was first started, our technology was created by linguists who would handcraft rules that would specifically say, if you're in this situation, this is the change you should make. And in this case, it was um, relatively straightforward to combat bias because the linguists would make sure that they didn't codify any biases in these rules that they were writing about you know, 10 years ago, we've seen this rise in large models that are very reliant on generalizing over huge amounts of data. And this could be, you know, web-sized data. So if you think about all of the all the text on the web, these models might be learning, reading, you know, huge swaths of the web and generalizing from that. And then with that, we've seen a lot of perpetuation of biases that are present in these large texts. So within the past five to 10 years or so, this has become a greater focus in AI. So not just um, thinking about language, but also with vision, uh, with vision recognition. Um, and then also in language, thinking about um, gender is a really easy, easy example to point to. It's a very prevalent example, but you also have a lot of linguistic bias that has to do with race or ethnicity as well. Let's take a quick break to hear a word from today's sponsor. Memorize is a language learning app available on the web, Android, and iOS with over 65 million users. We all know that the fastest way to learn a language is by going to a country and immersing yourself in the language firsthand. But that's not always possible. So Memorize has created the next best thing. Their Learn, Immerse, Communicate pedagogy is underpinned with proven memory techniques that help you start speaking your target language as quickly and as easily as possible, while having some fun along the way too. First, you watch videos featuring native speakers using real-life language. Next, you learn the vocabulary from those videos before practicing usage. Then, repeat to keep expanding your knowledge. With Memrise, you'll only ever learn what you want and need to know. And here's the cool part. You can curate a learning path based on your own passions and interests. 
If you're a football fan, there's a language lesson for you. If you like watching TikToks in your spare time, Memrise has made lessons out of thousands of social media videos featuring your favorite influencers. Memrise has recently released the world's first AI language partner called Membot using GPT-3 technology. Membot gives users the chance to practice their language skills in a safe space with no fear of making mistakes before they head out to speak the language confidently in the real world. Memrise Pro gives you unlimited access to their entire library of content, helping you achieve your language learning goals even more easily and quickly. Head to the show notes for this episode to get an exclusive 50% discount off their annual plan, especially for Words for Granted listeners. Again, that link is in the show notes, but if you're in front of your browser right now, you can type in M-E-M-R-I dot S-E forward slash W-F-G five zero. So getting away from some of the more like grammatical and orthographical aspects of Grammarly's uh, AI suggestions, let's talk about some of the more like social stuff. I, I guess we kind of alluded to this with the earrings, uh, earnings dichotomy, but I'm wondering about things like, um, like, like hate speech or, or, or racism that might exist uh, within people's writings. How do you, how do you identify these uh, ca- categorically? Because uh, I mean, ar- one might argue that it's not so black and white. Um, and I can imagine that that can get quite uh, uh, difficult, you might say. So we have a team of linguists dedicated specifically to promoting, um, you know, more fairness in our AI. And they develop a variety of resources that we consult. And in turn, they develop these through extensive research, working with outside experts, um, consulting like advocacy groups for underrepresented groups, for instance, um, and you know, just com- continual monitoring of language. Because as you know, language is constantly evolving and there are new uses. Um, for, for language or their new words that are popping up. So by, by you know, taking this multifaceted approach, they're constantly updating the resources. And what we then do is anytime we're developing a new feature to give new types of writing suggestions to our users, this team will um, do a rigorous test to kind of stress test it and see like, are there any situations in which this, this, this potential feature might, might make an offensive um, suggestion, for instance, and then let the developers know so that the developers can go and fix the algorithm. Yeah. So you've been alluding to some of the ways you build different features within Grammarly, like collecting lots of data, working with specialized consultants on how to best select and assess that data, etc. But can you go into a bit more detail of like the entire pipeline, like take us from beginning to end of how you build out uh, a certain feature or, or, or writing suggestion? You know, first of all, is just defining the problem. You know, what is the phenomenon that we're trying to capture? In the Grammarly example, this could be looking for lack of conciseness in text. And so once you've identified the problem, you need to find data that has this phenomenon in it. So for instance, you know, we look for a lot of text that might be very confusing or very wordy and just have general like lack of conciseness. The next step is to then, you know, create manually what we want our automatic AI to do. So in this case, we have a bunch of trained people. Um, A lot of them have a linguistics background who actually go through and edit this text. 
to, to make it more concise. And once we have, once we have all this edited text, and this is, you know, this can be a huge volume of data that we're talking about. Once we have these data ready, we then send it to the AI model. And the AI model will basically like ingest all of this data and learn to recognize, you know, when, when this pattern occurs, this is a type of change that you make. Um, and these AI models, they, they use a lot of different signals to determine what to do. So it isn't just based off of having a specific phrase. The AI models can generalize to looking at categories of speech um, and different like structures, different structures. These are things that we may or may not like directly encode into the AI model. But now a lot of the AI models are smart enough to infer, you know, the syntax of language, even without having to explicitly tell the model what syntax is. Once we've basically taught the AI model by showing it a lot of examples, then the AI model will start to make suggestions and make guesses on its own. So what we do is we will then send a brand new text to this AI model and ask it to make predictions on how to make the writing more concise. And that's how we get the suggestions. There are a number of other steps involved. Obviously, this is a very high level description. But going back to the question of bias and how do we how do we look for and how do we eliminate or you know reduce bias as much as possible? So first of all, the bias can occur in the underlying data that we you know that all the unclear text that we find. So what we what we do at that point is we look at this data and we make sure that it's chosen from a variety of representative data sources. Then we make sure that the people who are actually editing this data to provide like the gold standard example, we make sure that they have diverse backgrounds and that they're, you know, not not biased in their annotations either. And then finally once the once the model is making suggestions after it's been taught, we will, we will stress test it and we'd give it a lot of unexpected inputs and assess its behavior and then make any changes we need to to eliminate the bias there. And this is all before the new protocol goes live, right? This is all sort of part of the, the, the testing and building phase. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And we, it's, it's very iterative. It's a very iterative process. And we have you know, like very detailed specifications of what the what the writing feature should do. Have you ever built a system with a specific goal in mind? And then once you start testing it out, you realize, oh, that's not actually working as planned. Uh, now we have to go back to the drawing board. Does that, does that ever happen? I can't think of a specific example to speak to, but, but it happens. It happens all the time where, where you do have to, you have to go back and you might have to start from scratch. It could be that the problem space is way too large and too generalized if you're trying to do too many things at the same time, it can be really difficult to um, to narrow in on this precise like phenomena that you're that you're targeting. So we have we have a relatively new feature out that provides tone rewrites, and so the goal of these of these features are to detect you know te text that might be framed negatively or might be robotic um, or not friendly, and then try to you know try to like make it more positive or make it more personable by offering suggestions to our users. And when we when we first looked at the development of this feature, we were thinking, you know, more generally about, well, you know, we want to make text warmer. So how can how can you increase the warmth of text? And then starting from that definition. Sorry, sorry for jumping in here, but real quick, do you have uh, 
a list of qualitative criteria, uh, very specifically defining what warm means? Exactly. It's a great question. Like, how do you define what it means to be warm or when text is warm? So, you know, we we looked at a lot of different examples of sentences and different texts to say, OK, well, this is cold and this is warm. Like, How can we how, how can we identify, you know, create create a very specific definition of what's warm? And then also, how can we how can we define the types of ways, the types of rewrites that should be applied to make text warmer? Um, and this ended up being incredibly complex, as you can imagine. Like it, it's very context dependent. There's so many different, you know, ways in which warmth manifests. And so instead, we we said, okay, like instead of warmth, we're going to think about um, being more personable. And so instead of like having a cold text, um, we're thinking about like robotic type of text, which just doesn't have very much, um, you know, it doesn't like elicit human connection. Um, or like empathy for the speaker. And so that's how we narrowed that example down. And even as I'm saying this, I know that robotic and personable are also hard concepts to define. But um, but in this context, you know, as we were developing these features, it was it was much easier to create a narrow definition for these terms. So it sounds like as long as you have the parameters clearly defined, like what is warmth or what is robotic, then the systems you build can work as intended, right? Yes, exactly. And so that's where that's where our linguists come in. Like our linguists are doing, they're drawing on their their background and their expertise and also, you know, doing research, looking at examples, texts to to develop these very refined and very um, you know, understandable and comprehensive definitions of what these what these terms mean and have examples of like what is and what isn't personable, for instance, in order to develop um, you know, reliable data to to build our models on. Now, I don't necessarily believe in the argument I'm about to make, but let's just say that someone takes the stance that having no bias is a form of bias in itself. Uh, this is kind of a nuanced point, and I'm not sure I'm really capable of articulating it on on, on the fly here. Uh, but I guess I guess the the in its simplest form, the question I'm asking is, how might you respond to that uh, criticism? I realize that I'm speaking a lot as a technologist and a computer scientist in my responses, more so than a linguist, because my immediate reaction is that AI, especially our modern day AI with machine learning, is bias. It's driven by bias because, you know, fundamentally, like machine learning, which is, um, you know, at the heart, it, it's the it's underlies almost all like our current modern AI. It learns from examples and it learns how to generalize. And, you know, fundamentally, that that is a type of bias. Right. True, so we can't true. actually eliminate bias from from the AI or from the machine learning AI, at least, because then it won't be able to to make a decision. Yeah. Although. I think what I'm talking about is more like these ethical and and social biases. I mean, sure. So there are, you know, if you think about differences in political viewpoints, there are people who might not want to have inclusivity suggestions that are, you know, saying, oh, well, when you're using blacklisted, for instance, that could be offensive. You should use like blocked or blocklisted instead. And so, yes, there are those segments do exist. And 
you know, our stance is that we're trying to help people all around the world communicate who come from a variety of different backgrounds or communicating in different settings. And so, you know, we want to create common ground and not potentially, you know, introduce distance between people and like make sure that any of our users is received with the assumption of good intentions. If we provide suggestions to help a user reduce the offensive words they're using, then we think it helps our ultimate mission. As we wrap up here, uh, are there any last things you want to squeeze in either about Grammarly, machine learning in general, uh, any more specifics about your particular work within the company? Yeah, I think yeah, this is really important work. It's something that I feel very strongly about. And it's something that we have been, um, you know, taking taking really seriously. It's also really hard. There's no right answer. Um, you know, almost all language is subjective. And it's really difficult to identify like what this, like there's no single ground truth and no single answer. So yeah, this is ongoing work that we're constantly doing research, consulting lexicographers, looking at trends in language usage, looking at you know types of feedback that we get from our users when you know there might be something that they disagree with. And it's an evolving approach. And we have you know these teams of linguists who are on call and constantly working to you know update the product so that we do have you know inclusive and um, ethical uh, suggestions. Awesome. Yeah, I mean it's 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 totally mind blowing stuff. Just how uh, how all of this actually works in in practice, and yeah, I think listeners and and me myself included really appreciate getting a glimpse behind the curtain uh, for for some of this amazing technology. Uh, so, Courtney, if listeners want to follow you, learn more about you, uh, where can they do that? My website is courtneynapolis.com, and I'm also on LinkedIn. My Handle on LinkedIn is C-N-A-P-O-L-E-S. All right. Well, Courtney, thanks again for coming on to Words for Granted. Thank you so much, Ray. I enjoyed our conversation today. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.